Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, Covenant Grace Church. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. I had a message pretty much ready to go, middle of the week, uh, from Exodus 20. But then as the week went on, I felt that there's something we really need to be reminded of here. We need to be reminded of who we are as a church, what is our message, and what is our mission. This seems especially needed this week as we continue to be dispersed, and we're dealing with a time of great chaos and division in our culture. I thought it'd be an excellent time, too, to see the unique glory of Christ in this moment. So who are we as a church? Well, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that that question can be answered by telling a story. And the story he tells us is this, that we are a people reconciled to each other and to God. And I know that order seems kind of strange, that we're reconciled to each other and to God, but that's the order in our text. Take a look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." This church in the first century that Paul's writing to in Ephesus was created from people who hated each other for generations. Um, It was created out of two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles would be a group of people that are anything other than Jewish. And so Jews and Gentiles, God created this church out of them. And these were people that hated each other for generations. And that's no exaggeration. If you look at verse 14 and verse 16, you'll see the word hostility. Guys, the gospel turns natural enemies into family. And that's something that only Jesus can do. That's something that's Jesus' unique glory. Take a look at verse 14. It says, He himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace. And specifically, the peace he means in that text is peace with each other. Jesus, of course, gives us peace with God. But in this text, he's actually focusing first on our peace with each other. That Jesus himself is our peace. That's something only Jesus can do. Did you guys know that Jesus' people, the church, is the most diverse movement in history? By far. The church, Jesus' people, are the most diverse movement in history. There's no competition. There's no religion or political movement or philosophy that is more united people from diverse backgrounds. The church is the most diverse movement in history. And guys, this is a unique glory of Jesus. Jesus reconciles natural enemies. It's something only he can do. And guys, right now, he is who the world needs. Amen? Where culture says that it wants a unified world of love and diversity, right? Our culture says they want this unified world of love, um, of diverse people brought together, unified, loving one another. That's what our culture says it wants. But it never seems to be able to give it. It never seems to be able to make it happen. It's a good aspiration. It's actually a kingdom aspiration. It's actually what the kingdom will look like when it comes fully. If you look at Revelation 7, 9, you see a picture of what the kingdom looks like when it fully comes. And it looks like this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
The culture's problem, though, is that they're trying to create the kingdom without the king. Our, our nation is a post-Christian nation, meaning that it had a, a, a time when it had some semblance of Christianity, some semblance of, of Christian religion in it. But now we're in a time called a, a post-Christian nation. And a post-Christian nation is a nation that still wants some of the things of the kingdom but they've disregarded the king. It means that you want the kingdom, the beautiful things that Jesus promises, but without the king. But here's the thing, guys. The kingdom only works with the king. Only King Jesus can reconcile enemies. Look again at verse 14. It says, He himself is our peace. Without Jesus, there will be no peace, either with God or with each other. There will be no peace and no kingdom without the king. Notice how King Jesus reconciles natural enemies in the kingdom. Look at verse 14. He, he reconciles us through his own crucified body. Take a look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then if you drop down to verse 16, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus, guys, cares so much about human reconciliation. He cares so much about reconciling enemies that he gave his own body to be crucified. Jesus is no mere virtue signaler. Jesus' love has action. Jesus gave his own body to reconcile natural enemies. On the cross, Jesus Christ killed our hostility for one another by being killed in our place. And through the cross, Jesus broke three things that keep us at war with each other. And we're going to look at these this morning. He killed three things that keep us at war with each other. Our self-righteousness, our tribalism, and our desire for vengeance. Our self-righteousness, our tribalism, and our desire for vengeance. The reason our culture is always at war is because it actually encourages all three of those things. Our culture actively encourages self-righteousness, tribalism, and desire for vengeance. But Jesus, by the cross, has broken all three. Look at first, Jesus breaks our self-righteousness. We're moral creatures. And so whether you're religious or not, you're constantly making moral judgments, aren't you? We all want to think of ourselves as morally upright. Um, One of the ways we convince ourselves that we're good and moral people is by comparing ourselves to others. If we can convince ourselves that others are less moral than us, it makes us feel better about ourselves. And that desire, that desire to feel righteous, is what drives our judgmentalism. And guys, right now, and I think you'd agree with me, that that's a huge part of social media right now. A huge part of social media right now is to be seen as morally superior and to prove your righteousness. Have you guys seen that? Uh, those of you who are on social media, have you seen any moral superiority? Have you seen any judgmentalism on social media? Have you seen anybody trying to prove their righteousness to others? How about you? As you're scrolling along, do you feel a kind of a surge of self-righteousness as you scroll? As humans, we're moral creatures. We love that feeling. We love that feeling of self-righteousness. It makes us feel that we're better than others and that we're the good ones. Guys, that Jew-Gentile hostility in the the city of Ephesus and that we see in Ephesians here, That hostility between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus was partly due to that kind of self-righteousness. The Jews prided themselves on keeping the Mosaic Law. That Mosaic Law that was given to Israel at Sinai was to make them a distinct people, that they might be a light to the Gentiles and welcome and lead people to the Lord. 
But what God gave as a distinction, sin turned into a division, and that Mosaic law became a way of judging others and feeling superior to others and disdaining others. We can see that in verse 11 when he talks about the circumcised, right? That was a slam. That was a way of, of disdaining others. Oh, they're the uncircumcised. We do this too, guys. We want to think we're the good ones. We're the righteous ones. We're better than average. And those people down there, those are the sinners, those ones over there. Guys, our public discourse right now is full of that kind of self-righteousness. Even though we're not a religious culture, we're constantly making moral judgments and look down on those who we deem as sinners. And Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in Ephesus by fulfilling and abolishing the Mosaic law. Take a look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That law, that Mosaic law that became a barrier between Jews and Gentiles was actually something that Jews never could keep anyway. The Jews never even kept it. They, no one can keep God's law perfectly. Through the cross, Jesus shows us that we're all sinners. No matter what our race or political view or lifestyle choices, we're all sinners. None of us has fulfilled God's law. All of us need Jesus. We all needed Jesus to die for us. Guys, the cross is the most powerful display both of our evil and God's love. We were so evil that Jesus had to be crucified to make us clean and acceptable to God. And yet we were so loved by God that he was pleased to do it. Amen? We were so evil that Jesus had to be crucified to make us clean. And yet we're so loved by God that he was pleased to do it. The cross shows most powerfully uh, a display of both our evil and God's love. Jesus reconciles natural enemies by stripping away our self-righteousness and putting us all on the same level playing field. Morally, there is no us versus them. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. Now, you might say in response to that, well, Eric, you know that religion, not just secular culture, has actually been the cause of so much division and wars. Religion has actually caused a lot, so I don't understand why you would be advocating religion as a solution to division and chaos. And I just want to say to you this morning, I hear what you're saying, and I partly agree, but guys, I'm not talking about religion this morning. I'm talking about the gospel. Religion says my righteousness earned me acceptance with God, right? You can see how religion, if it means my righteousness earns me acceptance with God, you can see how that would actually make my self-righteousness worse, right? But the gospel says I'm so unrighteous that only Jesus could have earned my acceptance before God. So religion says my righteousness earns me acceptance with God. The gospel says I'm so unrighteous that only Jesus could earn my acceptance with God. While religion can actually make self-righteousness worse, the gospel tears down your self-righteousness. And guys, neither our secular culture nor religion can reconcile us because both of them encourage self-righteousness. Both religion and our secular culture encourage self-righteousness. Only the gospel both humbles us and gives us hope. Only in the gospel do we see that we're sinners and yet loved in Christ as a gift. Guys, the gospel is the one thing that has not been tried. 
I think a lot of people look at the world and they think, oh, well, we already tried the Jesus way and it didn't work. That's not what we're seeing here in the world, guys. The gospel has not been tried and found ineffective. The gospel has been found humbling and left untried. Let me give that to you again. The gospel has not been tried and found ineffective. The gospel has been found humbling and left untried. Guys, Jesus breaks our self-righteousness that keeps us at war. The dividing wall of hostility by showing us that we are so evil in ourselves that Jesus had to die for us. And yet in Christ, we're so loved that he was pleased to do it. So first, Jesus has broken our self-righteousness. Secondly, Jesus has broken our tribalism. We're tribal creatures. We find our identity in the tribe we belong to. Those tribes can be political, they can be racial, they can be cultural, they can be class-oriented, they can be national, they can even be different kind of lifestyle choices. We have a deep desire to know who's in and who's out, right? The Mosaic Law actually gave the Jews a significant racial pride. And of course, the Gentiles had their own racial pride. They had pride in whatever groups they were a part of. Guys, our culture right now is very tribal. It's encouraging us to break into ever smaller warring groups. It's, it's calling us to find our identity in an us versus them tribe, whether it's political party or race or class or lifestyle or even food choices. Our culture is encouraging us to divide into ever smaller warring tribes, looking down on others. The more exclusive and smaller the tribe, the better. But guys, Jesus reconciled Jew and Gentile by replacing their tribes with one new humanity. Take a look at it. Verse 14, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might, listen to this, create in himself one new man in the place of two, thereby making peace. Becoming one body in Christ meant that both Jew and Gentile gave up their tribalism. They still had tribes. They were still Jews and Gentiles. But they were now had something more important. They were in the one body of Christ. And so that caused them to repent of their past hatreds, to repent of their past abuses of one another. They became one body, Jesus' body. Jesus has made us one body as well. Jesus takes people who identify with all kinds of little warring tribes and makes them into one new body. As verse 14 makes us both one, creates in himself one new man. That language there, that's the language of union with Christ. When you came to Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've taken on Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you got united to Christ. What happened was the Holy Spirit suddenly came into you. He dwells in you now. And because the Holy Spirit is within you and the Holy Spirit is also in heaven, he connects you to Jesus who is physically reigning in heaven. So you're united to him. Some older authors talked about it almost like an umbilical cord that this person, God, the Holy Spirit, connects you to Christ. And now you're considered one with Jesus. You're considered in him. If you read through Ephesians, you're going to see tons of language of in Christ, in him. That's all talking about union with Christ. And union with Christ, guys, has two amazing benefits. It has legal benefits and it has life benefits. The legal benefits are like marriage. So when you got married, if you're a married person, if you got married, you actually now share assets and liabilities with one another. Well, when we got united with Christ, we shared with him assets and liabilities. Except here's the thing. We had all the liabilities and he had all the assets. Our debts, our liabilities, our sin was transferred to him on the cross. He paid for that. 
He shared our debts. And then now he shares with us his assets, his wealth, his righteousness, his credit to us. So we appear righteous by God, and Jesus appeared to be our sin on the cross. He dies, it's paid, he rises again on, on Resurrection Sunday. He now reigns in heaven. We're connected with him by the Holy Spirit, and we're seen as in him legally righteous before God. That's the legal benefit. But there's also a life benefit because, because the Holy Spirit is within us and he connects us to Christ, Christ's life can now flow in and through us and out into the world. That's our only hope of living differently than the world is that it's Christ's life flowing through us. And because we're all connected to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we're also all connected to each other. You can imagine if Christ by the Holy Spirit is connected to each believer, then each believer is actually connected to one another by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now links us together as one living entity on this planet, as one body. The Apostles' Creed calls it the communion of saints. That we have communion with one another, actual linkage by the person, God, the Holy Spirit. We have a communion with each other because we're united with Christ. Guys, and in a culture that wants to divide us more and more into smaller warring tribes, Jesus has made us one body, his body. And the culture doesn't know what to do with us. They would love to pit us against each other. They would love to divide and conquer. But we can no longer war against each other because we're actually one body. Guys, you know, in medicine, when the body wars against itself, it's autoimmune, right? It's a devastating thing to have an autoimmune disease. The Holy Spirit causes us to be one body together. We can't war against one another without hurting one another and the witness of Christ in the world because we're united as one body in the Holy Spirit. And our identity now as one body together is more fundamental than any other identity we have. Our connection to each other through the Holy Spirit transcends any of the differences that we had before. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one, what? In Christ Jesus. You are one in Christ Jesus. We are one body. We're Christ's body. No human tribe is better than that, right? What human tribe would you, would you give up union with Christ to have, right? Now, of course, when you look at that text in Galatians, those people were still Jews, and they were still Greeks, and they were still free, and they were still slaves, and they were still male, and they were still female. But the unity of one another in Christ is bigger. And I see that in you guys. I feel like you guys really get that because we have a lot of diversity in our church. We have a lot of diversity politically. And you might say, oh yeah, I bet he's just saying that. Nope. (laughs) We have a lot of diversity politically. We have even some diversity theologically on certain things. We have certainly diversity in all kinds of choices of lifestyle. You know, people can divide over crazy things. They can divide over what they eat and what they buy and what they wear and what they do. And... Yet, I see in you guys that you value the body of Christ more than any tribe you could be a part of. And it actually says great things about our church that we have some tension. Because if we agreed on all the things that are kind of on the more tribal level, we might think that maybe that's what our unity is really based on. Maybe our unity is not really based on Christ. But because we have those tensions and those differences, it shows that we're not united around anything other than the gospel. Amen? So when you see those differences and those tensions, look at that as an evidence of God's grace, that we're actually united around the gospel, not other things. And and what's cool is because we're connected by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says that 
that we can feel one another's pain and joys. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, we all suffer together. That's a, that's a part of the communion of saints. That's a part of being connected together by the Holy Spirit. If one member suffers, all suffer. And um, these past few weeks have been um, especially painful. And, um, and it's not because of the pain that we just feel individually, but it's the pain that we feel because we're connected together. When you become a part of the body of Christ, you actually connect yourself to all kinds of other pains and joys, but pains, right? You've connected yourself to a wider family of people that have different pains and difficulties and struggles and unique challenges. Um, in veterinary medicine, there's, a, there's something called the, the deep pain test. So imagine you have a dog that maybe got hit by a car and has some sort of a spinal injury. One of the ways a veterinarian might assess that um, spinal injury to figure out the extent of it and where it is, is you might take the leg and you kind of poke on it. It doesn't seem to have any sensation in that leg. There's no movement, no sensation. One thing a veterinarian might do is take a pair of hemostats and clamp it right between the toes. Now that should hurt a lot, right? That's called a deep pain test. Obviously what should happen if that clamp down is the dog should feel it and pull the limb in, right? So you feel the pain and you pull the limb in. That would be a positive to a pain, deep pain test. I give you deep pain and the body feels the pain of the member and pulls it in, right? You feel the pain and you pull it in. It's the same with us as a church. If we're truly connected to one another by the Holy Spirit, then we feel the pain of one another. If one member suffers, we all suffer. And when we feel that pain, we pull them in, right? We feel the pain and we pull them in. I know that many of you have been wrecked as I have by the past couple weeks, the pain of our black brothers and sisters uh, in our body, in our local body and in the body wider, in the body of Christ and in the world really. And your reactions are not driven by the news or social media. You're not having like a political reaction to this. You're having a family reaction to this. You hurt because your family hurts. If one member suffers, we all suffer. You feel the pain and you pull them in. And that's what we need to do right now, guys. Well, we need to, with the body, as always, we need to feel the pain and we need to pull that person in. That's what we need to be doing. And many of you guys have expressed concern about our three police officers. So we have three police officers in our body. And um, I know you guys are concerned about their safety during this civil unrest, been praying about that. And I know you guys are concerned about their discouragement, you know, their professional discouragement that they, they go out there, they put their life on the line and just the media and things that are going on right now are just brutal for them. These are good, good cops, right? In our body, our own family. And I know many of you feel concern of people in our body that are at risk for coronavirus. As you guys know, there's older people in our body that have basically lived as prisoners for like two to three months now and have been isolated from their family, from their kids, from their grandkids. And I know you feel that pain and, and you pull them in. And that's what we need to be doing, guys. You need to feel the pain of the body, think about the body, and pull them in. And that pulling them in looks like you pick up the phone and you call them. You know, if you've got some way that you want to express your pain for them and your concern for them and your care for them, do it personally. Pick up the phone and call them, text them, encourage them. And I see you guys doing that. It's awesome. If that's been your response to this time, guys, then you've passed the deep pain test. If one member suffers, all suffer.
And since Jesus has made us one body, our spiritual life with God is, is never private. You hear people say, well, you know, my faith is private or, you know, my personal relationship with God is private. Guys, our spiritual life is personal, but it's never private. It's never private because look at verse 16. It says that we were reconciled both to God. So like we've been reconciled to each other and to God. We, we are not just individuals having an individual relationship with God. We're actually brought together and we're together having communion with God, that our connection to God has now interlocked and interconnected. And that means that we meet one another's needs, that we feel the pain, we meet one another's needs. And it also means, guys, is that we need to be reconciled to one another. I'm amazed how often in the New Testament, Jesus talks about forgiving one another um, and how important it is that there be reconciliation in the body. I mean, it's even in the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Like we can't just privately have a relationship with God when we have a very clear conflict with our brothers and sisters. Our union together by the Spirit means that our enjoyment of our reconciliation with God won't be full unless we enjoy full reconciliation with each other. Look at verse 18. It says, For through him we both have access in one spirit. I love that image there that our, our communion with God, are, it happens because of all three persons of the Trinity. So when you're praying, it's not just you here and the Father's way over here and you're trying to somehow get your prayers to him. That's not the picture here. The picture is that we pray to the Father in the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Okay? So we're we're in the Holy Spirit as we're praying, communion with God, reading the word. We're, we're in the Holy Spirit. We're coming to the Father through Jesus to the Father. All three persons of the Trinity are involved anytime that you're accessing communion with God. Think of how that transforms your prayer. That you, The Trinity is actually wrapping around you, desiring to commune with you. But look at who else is in that text. Look at it. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Who else is in there? Each other right? That our communion with God is something that is personal, but it's never private. Has this time of cultural division and disunity caused division and disunity between you and another believer? I think that could easily have happened. I don't know of cases, but I want to ask you, have the last couple of weeks, have you found yourself feeling more disunified and angry and embittered against other people in the body? Here's what I'd say to you reconcile with them at once. You have to. Reconcile with them at once. Jesus himself is our peace. We can't disdain or disregard anyone in the body and still experience the riches of communion with God, right? It it creates a barrier. We're one body. We can't war against one another anymore. And, And what's interesting too, guys, is nor can we be tribal and disdain those outside the body. Because you might think like, okay, you you're saying tribalism is a bad thing, but it sounds like you're saying that like in Christ, we're one big tribe against the other tribes. That's not what's going on here. We can't be tribal and disdain those outside the body either, because whose body are we? We're Christ's body, right? And Christ is the great reconciler. And so our posture towards the world is to lay down our lives, to be reconcilers, to be peacemakers, to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us, to pray for those who hate us right? We're Christ's body. We're reconciled. So Jesus has broken our self-righteousness, our tribalism, and lastly, Jesus has broken our desire for vengeance. Our culture talks about love and reconciliation a lot, but there's actually very little grace and forgiveness in our culture. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, 
Once I tell you, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, it's everywhere. Guys, our culture talks about love and reconciliation a ton, but there's actually very little grace and forgiveness in our culture. I mean, just look what happens anytime a public figure says something uh, socially objectionable, maybe even by accident, what happens? No grace, they're gone, they're canceled, they're cut, they're done, right? People talk about Christians being judgmental, but guys, our culture, our secular culture is far more likely to brand you with a scarlet letter forever, right? Forgiveness is actually very controversial in our culture. If you forgive, you're gonna be seen as weak, you're gonna be seen as enabling evil. Guys, our culture is not a culture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Our culture is a culture of vengeance. Our culture is a culture of vengeance. And, and there was a certain, there was certainly that same situation in Ephesus when the gospel came to town. Because Jews and Gentiles, they had long-standing offenses against each other. They had long-standing hatreds. And remember, this is a shame-honor culture. So if someone shames you or hurts you, what you need to do is you need to avenge yourself. You regain honor by vengeance, by revenge. And then a weird thing happens, right? Somebody brings the gospel to Ephesus and they hear about a God named Jesus. And that God is a God that we have wronged in countless ways that we have dishonored him in our conduct in the ways that we have treated him. Our sins actually deserve his holy hostility, right? So they hear about this God who's righteous and holy and just, and then they hear something that sounds impossible in their culture, that instead of acting in vengeance, God allowed himself to be crucified by his enemies for their sins against him. See how strange that would have sounded in a shame on our culture? That instead of acting in vengeance, restoring his honor, God allowed himself to be crucified by his enemies for their sins against him. They had to react like, what in the world? What kind of God is this? They're probably like, have some self-respect. <laughs> Protect your honor. Avenge yourself. Don't be weak. Don't enable their sin. Guys, in a culture that was out for blood, where any sin there be hell to pay, Jesus gave the blood and he paid the hell, right? In a culture where they were out for blood and any sin there be held to pay, Jesus gave the blood they needed and he paid the hell they owed. Cornelius Plantiga put it this way, in his death, Jesus absorbed the world's evil into himself without passing it back and so cut the loop of vengeance that has cycled down through the ages. Jesus killed the hostility between us by being killed for us. Jesus killed the hostility between us by being killed for us. Look at verse 16. Jesus reconciled us both to God, so we get reconciled to God, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus killed the hostility between us by being killed for us. That's what the gospel does in the heart of everyone who believes it is it breaks that cycle, that loop of vengeance. It turns natural enemies into family. I mean, we see this even with Jesus' 12, right? So his original 12 disciples. Some of those people were natural enemies out for blood and vengeance, right? You think about two guys. Think about Matthew and Simon the Zealot. So Matthew, Matthew's a tax collector. He's a traitor against his own people, the Jews. And he was a traitor to the Romans. And he would be somebody that would be despised in his culture. And then take a look at who else Jesus had. So he adds him. He says, come follow me. And he adds somebody named Simon the Zealot. Now the Zealots guys were nationalist assassins, okay? They believed that violence was the way to be freed 
from oppression to Rome. They wanted to free their people through violence. Some of the zealots were known as the Sicarii, which means the dagger men. They were named for these little daggers that they would carry around into crowds so that if they had an opportunity to assassinate somebody, maybe a Roman, maybe a tax collector, they could slip the knife into him and, and walk away. Simon, guys, Simon the Zealot, he would have loved to sink that knife into Matthew's traitorous flesh, right? But then Jesus comes along and he makes Simon and Matthew closer than family. That's what Jesus does. That's Jesus' unique glory. He himself is our peace. Jesus breaks our self-righteousness. Jesus breaks our tribalism. Jesus breaks our desire for vengeance. Guys, Jesus is the only hope for our world. That should be very obvious at this point. He is the king we need. And every time the gospel is shared and believed, another person is reconciled to God and to his enemies, and the kingdom grows. That's how the world changes. The world, guys, looks grim. But that in no way disproves the power of Jesus. It actually makes a case for the power of Jesus because our culture looks exactly the way you would expect if it was rejecting the Prince of Peace, doesn't it? Our culture looks exactly the way you would expect if it was rejecting the Prince of Peace, and it is. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile natural enemies. You will never get the kingdom without the king. You will never get the reconciliation without the reconciler. Our culture looks exactly the way you'd expect for a culture that is encouraging everyone in their own self-righteousness, that is encouraging everyone into tribalism, and that is encouraging everyone to take vengeance. Totally the opposite of the way of Jesus. If you're looking for hope, do not look at the culture. <laughs> Don't look to the culture to see the kingdom. When you look at the culture, what you're seeing is this is what war with the king looks like. They're at war with the king. If you're looking for hope, look to the places where King Jesus is being received, and there you're going to find the kingdom. Look at places like the church in Ephesus. Look at our church. Look at any church where the gospel is being received and applied, and you'll see natural enemies reconciled. And I just say to you, I don't know where you're at, you know, emotionally, where you're at in your thoughts, but I would just plead with you, be a part of it. Be a part of God's people, the church. Yield to King Jesus. Have him as your Savior and King. Be reconciled to God and to others. Become a part of the body of Christ. Become one who's so vitally connected that you, you feel the pain of his members and you pull them in. This is the only hope for the world. The only hope for the world is to turn to King Jesus, period. Have you shown them that? Have you shown the world that? Let's pray. Father, Maranatha, Come quickly. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are beautiful words. Come. Come and reign over this world and make it new. We know you will. We pray you do it soon. Bless the preaching of the gospel through all of these people, your people, who bring it out. Lord, send revival. Send an awakening that millions would happily receive your son Jesus as their Savior and King. We thank you for the unique glory of Jesus, that he and he alone can turn natural enemies into family. May we, may we have those lives, more and more, those lives of reconciliation that show the gospel light of peace to a world at war. We pray all of this for the richly deserved glory of your son, Jesus. May he receive the full reward of his suffering, 
And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.